The email just said, please call this number. I called and spoke to a woman. She said, I'm Gary's friend. I'm in the hospital. He's in a coma. Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Each week, a storyteller will tell one of their stories and then break it down with me, Sean. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. This is episode number 26 and the sixth of season two, which is dedicated entirely to women and their stories. This week, Mary Jo Pollock is joining me on the Grit Podcast. I met Mary Jo last year, and our worlds have been crisscrossing ever since, primarily through the world of story. Mary Jo lives in Tucson, Arizona, uh, and she is one of the nicer people I've come across in a long time, so I'm really happy that she's uh, joining me here today. Now, we had a couple of tech issues. I think we worked it out, but uh, my audio might not be as good as it can be. I apologize for that, but hopefully it's good enough. Now, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please help us out by rating and reviewing this podcast. I know I say that a lot, but it really does help. Thank you very much for that. If you have an interest in classes or events, I will put all of that information in the show notes. Mary Jo Pollock, let's dive in. Okay, Mary Jo, first things first. What I want to know before they hear this great story, five-minute story, it's all it is, when and why you wrote this particular story, because as they will hear, it's not just a story about a butterfly. Nothing wrong with butterflies, but this is a little bit maybe, you know, a little heavier. I wrote the story for The Moth back in July 2020, and the theme of it was do-over, and it had to do with my relationship with uh, one of my brothers and actually his relationship kind of with everybody in our family. So I don't know who's listening. I'm going to guess most people listening. There's probably a good 2 million people hearing this. Sure, at least. Right. That they know the moth, but just so they don't, the moth is the largest storytelling organization, certainly in the English speaking world, right? That's a safe. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so, yeah. So they have these different events. One of them slams, you go and you compete against other people. For years, they did it live. In the last year plus, they were doing it virtually. So I think, Mary Jo, you won that moth when you, t- when you first told this story. Am I, I right? Indeed. How many people did you beat? There were eight people, I think it was eight. And at least one of them is a well-known, big-time, award-winning many moth winning uh, storyteller and you bested him that particular evening. Yes. Nestor Gomez, who I respect as a storyteller very much. And I didn't really know who he was because I was sort of new in this virtual actually was the first moth that I went to virtually. And I've been to one live in 19 
And so I didn't really know all of the players, but then I always keep lists of things that I do and then I throw them away eventually. And so I, maybe a few weeks later, I went over the list and I saw his name and I was like, whoa, I beat Nestor. Beat Nestor. Before they hear the story though, I'm wondering, so the theme of that particular night was do over. Right. Now you probably could have chosen any number of stories to put together that would fit that theme. Is there a reason why last summer you chose to tell this particular story about your brother? And as they'll hear in a moment from about, what is about 13, 14 years ago, this event? I don't think anything specific, but there was an event that uh, the story's built around that has stayed with me for these years. So it just, as far as a do-over, it just seemed like the appropriate theme. Of course, you know, there's probably a hundred things <laughs> that are do-overs. You know, this was a big emotional event. All right, we'll talk about that. After the millions of people who are hearing this podcast hear your story, but you actually tweaked a little bit of it. You had one version and then you you did it for the moth last summer under the theme, like sort of do-over. And then for us, it's a little bit different. Yeah, I changed the ending a little bit to be more kind of really what was in my heart. Because there was no theme for this particular show, right? It's just Sean and Grit and there's no theme. Right. Well, maybe bald and badass is like the running default theme, basically. I'm not bald. <laughs> well, I know, but it's, I didn't realize it was, it was about you. Okay, fair. Fine. <laughs> All right. So let's do this. We're going to play this, the, the, the story. It's a five-minute story. And then afterwards, we are going to break it down. Sound good? Yep. All right. This is Mary Jo Pollock, who lives in Tucson, Arizona, and her moth-winning story. September 28, 2007, I walk into my office, sit down at the computer. First thing I do is pull up my email. I scan to see if there's an important message, and one jumps out, all caps, Gary Pollock. Gary Pollock is my brother, my brother who I'm quite pissed off at at the moment. He hasn't responded to me in over two months, and we just put our mother in dementia care, and I wanted to help him make arrangements to visit her. My mom would come and visit me when I lived in the Bay Area, and she'd say, I want to go visit Gary in Arcata, and i okay, and I'd contact Gary, and he would respond right away if I said mom and I wanted to visit because he knew he could make a nice withdrawal from the bank of mom. He was pretty much homeless his whole adult life, and he held the family at an arm's length. The email just said, please call this number. I called and spoke to a woman. She said, I'm Gary's friend. I'm in the hospital. He's in a coma. Would you like to say a few words to him? Yes. Gary, I love you. I'm sorry this happened to you. I miss you. I love you. After she took the phone, I asked to speak with the nurse. The nurse explained that he had a brain aneurysm and he would most likely die within the next 24 to 48 hours. Then I called my cousin David, who lived near me. 
David, Gary's in the hospital. He had a brain aneurysm. He's in a coma. He'll probably die within the next 24 to 48 hours. I'm driving up to Arcata this weekend to make arrangements. No, I'll go with you. You shouldn't have to do this alone. Thank you. I call my Connie, my mom's sister, who slipped into the maternal role when my mother no longer could. I said, Aunt Connie, I'm sorry to tell you, Gary's in the hospital in a coma. He had a brain aneurysm and he'll probably die within the next 24 to 48 hours. David and I are driving up to Arcata to make arrangements. Wait, wait, let me see if I can get a flight into San Francisco. On Monday, October 1st, David and I picked Aunt Connie up at the airport. Gary had died earlier that day. We drove the five-hour drive through the majestic California Redwoods to Arcata. After having dinner, Aunt Connie exhausted, went to her room, and David and I went to my room. I had brought a bunch of pictures and some memorabilia, and we made a nice memory board. First thing the following morning, we went to the coffee break, a little cafe where Gary hung out with his friends. It's where I would always meet him when my mom and I would visit. We spoke to the owner and asked if we could have a memorial that evening and if we could put up the memory board. And he agreed. We made a few arrangements for refreshments. We returned about a half an hour before the appointed time. And the memory board was now surrounded with candles and cards and things people had written. It was an altar to Gary. People came up to us and they went, you're Gary's family. Can we touch you? We were a little floored. I expected maybe 12 people, but there were about 50 people there. Once everybody was seated, I got up, thanked everybody. I said a few words. And I invited people to step forward if they had something they wanted to say about Gary. Person after person after person came forward. Children said they loved when he babysat for them. Old people said he mowed their lawn. Other people said he walked their dogs. It appears Gary had a little enterprise going in Arcata. They called him the prophet of Arcata. After several hours, Aunt Connie, the reigning matriarch, got up and thanked everybody for coming and the crowd dispersed. And then we went to the car and as we were sitting in the car, I thought, it's really too bad. I never got to know my brother's life from him and I had to hear it from a group of strangers. Okay, so Mary Jo. How did that feel to tell that story again? You know, it felt okay. It brought back a lot of the feelings that had to do with my brother's death and how it affected our family and how it affected me personally. Actually, because he was semi-homeless, he lived in his car, social services and Medicaid actually took care of things. Mm -hmm. And I did find his wallet when I took his car, it was impounded. 
I was working with the social worker and giving her whatever information I had that I found in his wallet, like his social and stuff. And I didn't really mourn or cry. I mean, I felt grief. But when I was at work, maybe five or six months later, she called me and she said, everything is done. Medicaid paid for the whole hospital bill. There's nothing else I need from you. I just wanted to let you know that this is a completely closed case and blah, blah, blah. I went and walked in the building I was in. We had a back entrance and there were back steps. And I went and sat on the back steps and sobbed my heart out. This was after? Months after he died. Mm. Months. You know, it's just like that. Like sometimes something just bubbles up and it's unexpected. And I hadn't cried up to that point. You know, this is about story stuff. So I always think one of the things I think about is beginnings and ends, right? Start where you start and where you stop. And I'm wondering, so you're putting this story together. This is something I'm sure the event you've shared with people, not really in story format per se, oh, but just, I went to see my brother, he had this accident or he had an aneurysm. Like you just, you talked about it, but you never put it in like story format. Right. I mean, there's all those little stories that you tell your friends over coffee or at the Thanksgiving table or out for cocktails. And I'm sure I came back and I went, you won't believe it. They called him the prophet of Arcata. You know, I mean, that was a story, you know, that you would tell a friend when you're having dinner together. Right. Like bits of anecdote. So you could have put in this story, you could have crafted this story, or you may craft a version of this story one day where it ends with you crying several months later. You know, and I hadn't thought of that till just like two minutes ago when I started talking about it. And as I was saying that, I thought, oh, that's another version of the story. <laughs> so once you start doing the storytelling, you can't stop. Your mind just keeps like doing that with every yep. little incident. It's like another possible ending. And it's not right or wrong. It's just another place you got to choose to end this thing, right? Right. Or it's another story. Maybe so. It's a story that could start at the memorial and then continue when I go back a month later to clear out his storage units and end with crying, thinking that could be another story. There could be Gary part one and part two. Right. Many parts. I mean, it's like when people say they don't have stories, I'm just like, nah, you're just not using that muscle. You've got many a story. Most of the story takes place in scenes. Stuff's happening. You ended it the way you ended it. A wish that you, you wish you could have known him in a different, slightly different way. And then we went to the car and as we were sitting in the car, I thought, it's really too bad. I never got to know my brother's life from him, and I had to hear it from a group of strangers. Do you remember, I know it's been several months, do you remember why you happened to end it, you chose to end it there, the way you ended it? Well, we couldn't believe that the whole thing lasted like two and a half, three hours. And I don't think we'd eaten dinner or anything. You know, we thought, you know, a memorial, half hour, maybe an hour. The three of us just got in the car and we were just sort of spent. And I felt really bad at that point that I didn't get to know him better. This is sort of tangential, but do you wish you had not learned what you learned or what you discovered? No, I'm glad that I did because I never really knew if he was happy with the choices that he made or not. Based on what I learned that night and then on my subsequent trip, and um, I spent a lot of time with his, a close friend of his. And I was really happy and I believe that he lived the life he wanted to live and he was happy and he had friends and he had the community that he needed and that he wanted. 
And so it was good for me to learn that rather than thinking he's just all out there, this person and he, you know, he's smart and he had talent and there was no reason that he be homeless. And it was a choice, not a result. It says something about you that you'd rather know because it, it, it presumably means he lived a slightly a better life than you may have imagined, even though it also means what you learned is that he didn't tell you this, like you were left out. It's like a bitter pill. It's like bittersweet, no? Yeah, he, he didn't really share anything with anybody. Do you remember what you said to me when I asked you last time in the recording that didn't work out very well? why you think he didn't share with people what was going on in his life? Um, he did have mental illness. Okay. And according to my uncle, who's not a psychiatrist, but he's an MD, and he felt that Gary was um, paranoid schizophrenic. And he thought certain things about if you lived your life, you know, and you worked and you use your social security card, then people were tracking you or if you tried to get food stamps. And so he had the these ideas of this other that would not be favorable for him. Right. And there was another reason. I don't remember what I told you. You said no one wants to be judged. Oh, right. Because my mom and I would always say, Carrie, why don't you do this? You know, and I sort of wish I hadn't done that. It's a tough spot. Yeah, it's really, it's hard. I don't know that he would have opened up anymore sure. anyway. This is a story that took place in 2007. We talk about facts and truth, and they often overlap perfectly, but sometimes they don't. Like we can play with facts a little bit in stories as long as the emotional truth is honest. That's what I think. Did you remember all the stuff you needed to for the story, or did you have to read a diary or... or um, Not 100%, but I did call David and I called my aunt Connie and I said, I'm writing the story about Gary's memorial. What do you remember? Then I added that with my own memories. And it was helpful because then they wanted to talk about it a little bit. And I'll remember this and remember that. Things that maybe didn't make it in the story, like certain individuals and such. If that was really helpful. And I I do that when I'm doing stories. Oh, when I'm doing... I did one recently about um, learning to drive when I was 16. And I remember talking to my brother about it. Well, what about when, what did mom and dad do with you when you learned to drive? You know, so it was, I find it good sometimes to talk to somebody else who was there. Right. Instead of just relying entirely on your own memory. Mm -hmm. And it reinforces, or sometimes it brings something else up. You know, you know, an event, a dinner party, say, a hundred things can happen at that table. And you remember 10 of them and you talk to one of your friends and they go, remember when Joe did this? And you're like, oh, right. You know, and then it triggers another 10 for you. I think it's important to, you know, use those resources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we talk about all the details one could include in a story, but perhaps isn't always the best ideas to include in the story. For those that are listening, Mary Jo's in a part of a group that I facilitate some of the feedback that you get, and many people do, it's not just you, is too much detail or certain kinds of detail. There's a lot of stuff here. Let's tighten it up, get clear on what the story is about. So how do you figure out, let's say use this story as an example, you know, especially with someone like your brother, you have this many, many decades history talking about mental illness. I mean, there's just so much to choose from. So how do you figure out what to include and just as importantly, what not to include? 
Right. My process, and I have been teased for it, Sure, is that I bring in everything and right. then I whittle away. That is my process, not only in storytelling, it's my process in baking, in painting, in everything that I do. Baking? Oh, yeah. How does that show up for you in baking? I don't understand. <laughs> well, let's say I want to make it's the holidays and I want to make gifts. And so I want to make three kinds of cookies to okay. give as gifts, little packages. Mm-hmm. I will go through 50 recipes and then I narrow it down to 12 and then I decide on six and then I figure out the three I want to make. Got it. So when I've I'm, been around, I've been around you for almost a year and that's kind of like it, how it is for you when you're working on your stories at first, they're like very long. There's a lot of stuff and we got to work out. Not that we're the gatekeepers. We're not like the decision makers, but I think some of the feedback you and others get is let's figure out what to include and what not to include. Since I started, instead of writing my stories out, recording them, and I make notes when I listen to the recordings, but sometimes when I'm listening to my own story, playing it back, I'm like, that's a snore. So So for sure, if you are bored by your own story, we're bored by your story. Right. Right. That doesn't need to be in there. That could be 15 seconds instead of a minute and a half. Those are tough choices, though, sometimes. You begin with it's September 2007? Yeah, September 28th, 2007. Why do you begin with a date? I don't know. <laughs> That's just such an honest answer. We want honesty. <laughs> well, it does help to know the date, so you just chose to start with it. Right. That was like a real pack-filled year because we had just put my mom in assisted living for dementia. And then Gary died. We never even told her because she would have never remembered and she would have been upset. And Gary died on October 1st. And the anniversary of my father's death is October 4th. So it's just, I guess those dates right in there sort of were important to me. They probably don't benefit the story. You know, I could have just said 2007. Sure, you could have either way. You uh, Here's a few things that I think work really well. Where you start and stop works. I'm not analyzing it and I'm not being like critical. I want to point out a couple of things I think you do well that I think other people who are hearing this might benefit from. Thank you. You focus on, you don't give away a lot in your story. So somebody newer to storytelling might say more like essay style with that like thesis statement right at the beginning man, I wish I had known my brother like other people knew him. Makes sense. Nothing wrong with it. But you've kind of told us the story. And now you've got to work really hard to keep our interest, frankly. But you don't do that. You essentially kind of discover along with us. You bring us on this journey. So when you're figuring this shit out is when we're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Right? This is good. When you're learning, oh, my God, these people in his life, and he was this way, and he was called the prophet, like, that's just really satisfying for an audience because you're not getting ahead of us. I think I just did that intuitively. <laughs> you know, I don't know how else to say what, it. But what, what, I knew how I wanted to end. And I know not to give the end away. So, you know, when I say in the beginning, we know Gary died. So that's not the right. story. That's not what the story is about. So you're not really right. giving it away. It's something mm-hmm. else. Whatever you realize, so to speak, at the end You've shown that in the story, which is what we want, I think, when we hear a story. Mm-hmm. We don't like those bullshit endings where it's like, wait a second, 
<laughs> what? That came out of nowhere. That doesn't happen in your story, which is good. Right. And there was this whole emotional shift because I'm p- really pissed at him. I mean, I really was. And then, um, and then, I, you know, in a second, you find out he's in a coma and he's not going to recover. Then, like, all my heart and my love came out for him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, three or four days, that's the extent of the story from Friday to Tuesday. It was an emotional trip. I bet. Yeah, I think a lot of people would have probably, some people may have not included that part about you being pissed off at him. You don't want to say that about your brother. He passed away. I don't want to tell a story in which I was angry with him. But I think it was a, a an effective choice that you made because it's human. And it shows the, the range of emotions, no? Right. And who hasn't been pissed off at their brother or sister? Right. At one point or another. I mean, it's part of siblingness. Right. Is that a word? I didn't know that was a word. Mary Jo Pollock in Tucson, Arizona just made a new word. It's called siblingness. A noun of having a sibling. Exactly. Sublitery. Do you always use this much dialogue in your stories or is this more than typical? Well, actually, when I was, because I hadn't told the story since last July, so I listened to it again and I actually, I put in more dialogue. Oh, do you know why? Why'd you choose to do that? Because I'm learning some techniques about storytelling since last July. (laughs) (laughs) And I... Even though that won the moth. Right. (laughs) I mean... But I thought that instead of like stringing sentences together by saying, oh, I I told David that I'm going to go up and... He said, oh, don't go. Or, and then he said he would go with me or something like stringing things together like that. I just thought if I have a couple sentences, David, I'm going up to make arrangements for Gary. I'm going with you. I don't think you should go alone. OK, thank you. Says it. It's more succinct without all these extra little words in the middle. Right. So you make it more succinct and you bring in some other characters like they're actual what they said. Mm-hmm. You don't get into voices and caricature stuff much, but I don't think you need to. No, I can't really do that. I mean, I could slow up or speak faster. Sure. For a different character, but we know people that do voices pretty well. When people don't do them well, it's so distracting. It takes you out of the story, which is one of the yeah. last things you want, right? Mm-hmm. I generally just don't like voices, even if they're good. There's other ways to express it, which you do. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be your brother and his voice and his octave. and Right. I will do a little bit with, a, like I said, with the speech pattern, like faster or slower. I don't have the kind of training to do voices. You only have to find one difference to make the, a, a, enough of a distinction, but that doesn't need to be... New York accent, Southern accent. It could be, like you said, tempo. The slightest little change is all we really need to know is that, okay, somebody else is talking. And in my short phone conversations, I didn't really need to do that. I thought it was obvious who was saying what. But if I was doing a longer conversation with somebody, I would change the tempo a little bit so that it would be easier to follow who's saying what. Yeah. I think what matters most is that you were aware of it. 
and you were thinking about how is my audience going to be presumably, I mean, you're not, you don't, you're not your audience, but you're trying to sort of gauge how are they taking it in, which is good. Yeah. I think about that. I think about that with the vocabulary that I use in a story and how I link things together. Mm -hmm. I think about everything. Good. That's why that's important. When people don't think about it, it shows usually, usually. Do you think the story's done? Well, no, I just thought of a sequel. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we might have another story where it might end with you crying. Maybe. Crying. It doesn't mean you're going to actually cry for us. You're just going to share with us that you were crying. No, I have cried when I've told stories, but I try not to. Stories that I know that are going to be an emotional trigger for me, that something's yeah. going on. I practice them a lot to try to, even if my voice wavers a little, because I don't want to cry. So you have to practice so you don't cry. Because mm -hmm. I'm really emotional. I mean, I'll cry relating. Oh, I saw the little birds outside. Right. <laughs> well, maybe not that. Well, you were on something, uh, the seven by seven back some at some point. Mm -hmm. Last year, maybe. And you, you got pretty teary eyed when you were talking about some of your own struggles. Right. Yeah. Do you remember the other ending for the moth winning story? It, it was similar. I might have used the word do over in it. You know, that there was, I didn't have a second chance to get to right. know my brother, something to that effect, to tie in with the theme. I try not to use the word of the theme, so I probably use something close to it. Right. I've been to moths where they have the theme where somebody uses it in every other sentence, the word of the theme. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> Who are your favorite storytellers? So if people are hearing this, they can maybe go check them out because they want to be entertained and learn. Donna Washington, who I think we've ascertained is your neighbor, kind of. Lives in my, in my area, apparently, yep. She can tell any kind of story from a personal story to I heard her doing a redo of Hansel and Gretel that was creepy from the witch's point of view that I was scared. And, <laughs> and that was at the Women's Storytelling Festival that was a few weeks ago. Okay. Like she has a beautiful voice and a beautiful presence. She's wonderful. And the other one is Laura Packer. From Laura Packer, I learned that you can switch your uh, case. So instead of just being, I don't know if case is the right word. You know more about grammar. Like than first me. person, second person. So she goes person. from first person to second person. like, And then we went here and you know what happened next. And so I tested the waters on that because sometimes it's a good transition to pull the audience in that way and you can imagine what happened when we found five joints in the kid's drawer, you know, so, or whatever, and then go on with the story. So kind of bring, oh yeah, I can imagine that, you know, and then people want to know really what happened. I like that she does that. And she also has like a really nice voice mm -hmm. and she's creative. And she also tells personal stories. She can be hilarious. She can be serious. And she tells folk tales and traditional stories as well. Yeah, both awesome. Awesome at this. Really good. Mm -hmm. well, what's the tip that you would give somebody? If somebody's newer to this. Think of in moments 
in smaller portion. Don't think of like your whole high school years because you want to talk about your first kiss when you were a junior in high school or something. You know, you don't have to say every boy you went out with before you had this first kiss. Stick with the boy and the kiss. And that's the story. That's the only thing that's going to be interesting. And and I've told stories that have spanned decades, but it, it's harder to do these sort of, you know, epic lifetime Hallmark right. stories. Just better to focus on some little part of the story. Totally true. Stay in moments. Yeah, moments. Now, how to do that can be challenging, but stay in moments. We appreciate it. We like it. We connect to it. In my process, I think of the moment. Then I think of 500,000 things that had right. to do with that moment before and after, and then I whittle it down to 200,000 <laughs> and so on. <laughs> you have no interest in making this process smooth or easy. It's just how I have always done. And we give you feedback on get rid of all those ands. A lot of people use and as one of a handful of words that isn't really being used as a conjunction. Right? It's being used as con- like it's some connector, almost like um. Yeah, it's a spacer. Somebody did point out that I said and then a lot in my story. So I deliberately... And I was so glad she pointed it out at somebody who's in a group I'm in. Yep. If I hear myself in my head doing that, you know, you're a few words ahead. I take a breath, try hard not to do that. I listen to my uh, recordings, my talks uh, when I'm doing this podcast and my other podcast. I use the word like a lot and it makes me crazy when I hear it. Oh, that's interesting you say that because I don't really notice it. Now I'll probably notice it. Maybe not as much as I think I do, but I hear it. I'm like, why are you, there's no reason to use that word there. I'm not using it in like love-like kind of way. I'm using it in this sort of lazy, weird way of talking where it's like, and so like, what? Shut up. I I remember when I was a freshman in college, when I was talking to my English professor and I was saying, well, like then I did this and then like I did that, you know, and that was very, those in the sixties and that was very there. And then I handed my essay or whatever it was. And he wrote back, I remember he wrote back and he said, I'm glad your written language is better than your spoken language or something to that effect. I'll never forget that. He hasn't heard one of your stories, that son of a gun. Yeah. I don't even remember his name. Well, congratulations on winning the moth last July. Thank you. Thank you for joining me and telling this slightly revised version of the story. Thank you for asking me. Let's skedaddle. You know how this thing ends. This episode is over on three, one, two, three. Boom. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Mary Jo Pollock out in Arizona. Mary Jo, thanks for telling that story and breaking it down. Check out the show notes for links to classes and upcoming events. And once again, if you listen on Apple, help us out by rating and reviewing this podcast. It really does help. Thanks for that. That's all for episode number 26. Like Mary Jo said, boom.